Hi, this is Benjamin Joff, partner at SOSV. We invest in early-stage startups with a focus on deep tech, ranging from cellular agriculture to neurotech and service robots. In this podcast, startup founders and investors tell us how innovation can go from lab to market. We prefer technology risks to market risks on any investment that we make. The openness to failing and identifying what is the biggest risk we need to retire is our playbook, really. But by far, our biggest value add to our portfolio companies is on the recruiting side. Kosla Ventures, or KV, was founded by Vinod Kosla, co-founder of Sun Microsystems, with the goal of using technology to improve the lives of the 7 billion people on our planet without destroying it. KV has been investing in deep tech for 15 years. On managers over $5 billion across six funds, it invested in about 400 companies generally at early stage, including Impossible Foods, DoorDash, Rocket Lab, OpenAI, and more. In this episode, two of their investment partners, Kanu Gulati and Rajesh Swaminathan, share insights about their areas of interest, including climate tech, biomanufacturing, and hardware acceleration of AI. They talk about their approach to risk management and their way of entering new sectors. They also talk about the critical role of recruiting for startups and how the KV team, including Vinod himself, contribute to this effort. Finally, we close with advice for investors new to deep tech and what could be done to improve the ecosystem at large. Kanu Rajesh, great to have you today. Hi, Ben. Uh, very excited to be here. I'm Kanu Gulati. My background is in electrical engineering. So I did my master's and PhD in Dublin, focused on hardware acceleration and high-performance computing. NVIDIA and Intel funded my PhD. I was an NVIDIA fellow. And then after graduation, I joined Intel as a research scientist, speeding up Think Math Kernel libraries on their new lines of hardware, and also focused on the application of EDA, which is a software which Intel uses for designing chips. I've then been part of early stage companies as one of the founding employees or founding engineers. Most recently, a company called OmniSci, which uses hardware acceleration for speeding up data query and visualization. I've been on the investing side for over five years now, and at KV in particular for over three years. The introduction to KV happened through a cold email, and I did an internship here, and then after a few other hops came back. And at KV, I tend to focus on applications which involve data, machine learning, computer vision, speech recognition. I also focus on robotics, autonomous systems, and hardware acceleration of AI. So I know my intro sounds very buzzwordy, but this is all the things I focus on here at KV. So you're really coming from the chips and electronics type of hardware. Yes, I'm trained on the deep electrical engineering and, and single processing side. But a lot of my PhD focus was on the software that's built for leveraging hardware correctly. So what architectures fit well? So it's really on the combination of hardware and software stack, which now with the advent of deep learning and AI has just found renewed interest there's a lot of overlap with uh, what's happening around autonomous vehicles, robotics, and even uh, medtech and other applications where you need that combination of hardware and software. Rajesh, uh, tell us also about uh, your path to KV. Absolutely. Happy to. I joined uh, Kosla Ventures in January this year, primarily focusing on hardware deep tech opportunities across multiple verticals. Before joining KB, I was heading Applied Ventures. It was a $300 million VC fund out of Applied Materials, where I focused on deep tech. Earlier, it was clean tech, then AI, AR, VR, 
3D printing, medical devices, essentially a lot of material science-based uh, deep tech investments. Academically, my background is chemical engineering and material science. I worked at Bell Labs with uh, tons of optical startups back in 2001 to 2006. Went to business school, worked in summer internship in clean tech banking. During the time, met with Vinod and Samir, worked with a couple of their portfolio companies. This is almost 12 years back. Then I moved to Applied. I'd been there for 10 years, done a couple of co-investments with KV, and it's great to join the fund a few, six months back, just before COVID. Wow, that's a special time. But uh, what's interesting is that even though it's been like so challenging for startups and for investors, it looks like everybody's getting up to speed with new business practices and keep investing and keep growing companies despite the situation. But we'll probably cover that in the later stage of today's episode. For those listeners who are not familiar with uh, Kozla Ventures, can you, if you can tell us more about the, the origins and the mission of the company? KP's mission at the highest level is reinventing societal infrastructure with technology. We think about getting into new sectors by starting with the GDP of the United States. What are the sectors that can gain from technology and advances in autonomous systems and figure out where there might be the best combination of financial returns and uh, improvement to society. It was started by, you know, is a very successful entrepreneur. He was the founder of Sun Microsystems, had an exciting run as a general partner at Kleiner Perkins and then started KV more than a decade ago. We are currently investing out of our sixth fund. Typically, what kind of investment stages on the check sizes do you do? Everything from doing a first check, which is a few hundred K, to writing a large check. On the extreme, we've done our largest publicly announced check is $50 million into OpenAI. Our sweet spot is writing a first check between one and 10 million which, you know, loosely translates to seed and series A. But yeah, we have a lot of flexibility. KV is very famous in the US and North America at large. You've done also a few deals in Europe. What is your geographic coverage? We can do investments everywhere. We have investments in North America, in, in Europe, all the way in Australia and New Zealand. Up until now, like the farther you were from Silicon Valley, the bar just got higher. I do think the current COVID environment is having a role to play here because distance really doesn't matter. Everybody's doing a lot of the diligence online. We do have a larger portfolio in North America, but we are open to investments everywhere. We have a co-investment in Sweden called Flow Neuroscience that does a brain stimulation device to treat depression. Also know that in your portfolio, you have a few really interesting companies overseas. Rocket Lab be probably one of them. Yeah, absolutely. We have invested in some very cool companies across you know, many sectors, clean tech, ag tech, healthcare, enterprise, education, fintech tech, robotics, big data. Um, so wherever there is a strong opportunity to make a technical impact on large markets, we made some good investments there. In fintech, we were one of the early investors in uh, Stripe. We were also invested in Squire. In healthcare, we have invested in companies like Gardant. It's a public uh, company, which is you know completely changing the world of uh, liquid biopsy. And in Actec, we were one of the very early investors in Impossible Foods. Uh, it's a plant-based meat that's uh, getting a lot of traction in grocery stores and Burger King. It's chartered with an idea with a great entrepreneur, Pat Brown, working with Samir to make it happen. In uh, enterprise, we have been an investor in DoorDash. Particularly in the COVID times, we have done a lot of investments in companies that are making a huge impact. We made these investments a while back, looking to change the world of infectious diseases, and those are coming very handy for what is happening in COVID now. OpenTron is an investment we have done with you guys at SOSV. It's an open source lab automation. They can automate PCR sampling. They can automate uh, NGS library prep. So a lot of companies are able to leverage that capability to scale up the COVID testing at this point. And you mentioned Flow Neuroscience is another good example. In the world of clean tech, there are companies that have kind of incubated at KV and grown really well. 
Quantum Scape is one such example. They're going after the lithium batteries far higher energy density than what is possible in the market today. It started with uh, Jagdeep Singh as an EAR at KV, and they recently closed a $200 million funding from Volkswagen. So there are plenty of examples in each of the sectors that I can think of. Kanu can perhaps add more to it. You mentioned that some of those companies were incubated at KV. Could you give more details about what that means? So for KV to enter a new area or, or starting a new incubation, there are a couple of ways we think about it. Like I said, starting with the GDP of the country and, and saying what are the areas that can really gain from autonomy and advances in technology. And the other aspect we do very carefully is try to keep in close quarters with what we consider as centers of excellence for certain technologies, like keeping up with the best in class academic or industry labs for a certain technology and try to bring in people to help with incubation or help with diligence. And so some of these companies, like for example, Blue River is a former portfolio company that got acquired by John Deere. It started as a class at Stanford, Steve Blank's class on, on entrepreneurship. One of my partners was actually their advisor and the relationship just kept growing and we decided to lead that investment. So it started really early on, almost like an incubation because we were out of that conversations pretty much from day one. So there are several examples in our portfolio where we are not just the first financial check, but also the first kind of a brainstorming partner with those companies. And, and we continue to do several incubations. And, and that's a model that we've been testing and optimizing over several years now. So you keep close to labs and entrepreneurs and they workshop some ideas with you, it seems. Yeah, they come hang out with us uh, up until COVID. They would spend time physically at our offices, but then work with them, just visualizing what could be changed here in a particular sector. What should exist? Where can autonomy or, or advances in technology really play a major role and incubate an idea or what a company should look like together? Examples of that include companies like Impossible Foods and Blue River and Rocket Labs. And, and several more in our portfolio. I just came across Vinod Kosla's post around critical climate technologies. Is this kind of thesis-based investment something you do a lot? KV has done a lot of investments in the past in clean tech, and climate crisis continues to be a major issue. So Vinod put out an article in a blog in Medium recently where he really talks about the 12 different technologies that move the needle. This includes aspects related to electric vehicles and automotive batteries. How could... Uh, food and agriculture, change in behavior and that change in technology and that could make a huge difference uh, in the greenhouse gas emissions. We also talk a lot about low carbon transportation, jet fuel, for example, recently one of our companies, Lanza Tech, spun off an entity called Lanza Jet with a large funding from some of the major aviation companies to go disrupt the opportunity around jet fuel. We talk about construction materials that could play a major role. So there are 12 different technologies Vinod talks about and there are 15 20 other opportunities that are not as critical. So that's just one example for climate tech. We also look at thematically a lot of other areas. For example, one of the areas I'm looking at the whole uh, concept of biomanufacturing. What are some different uh, sub-verticals within that? And, and we have done a lot of investments in, in some of those areas, and we are looking at new investments in some of those areas. So it's a thematic approach. And I do believe in a view on your Preparation meets opportunity is the right sweet spot in terms of finding an investment. What I found really fascinating also about uh, Vinod's piece was the fact that, of course, he mentioned some of the high visibility points that a lot of people talk about, but also looks into the less visible, less glamorous sectors, including steel manufacturing, uh, HVAC, energy consumption, and even cement fabrication. As you described, it's like looking broadly and systematically at what are the, the high potential opportunities that are not necessarily visible or reported much in the media. 
Absolutely. HVAC is a great example. Venture capitalists don't typically talk about HVAC because it's not you know, as attractive or some other technologies. But if you look at the impact, this is the number one on the book called Drawdown uh, that talks about prioritizing the list of opportunities and huge impact on the climate crisis. HVAC is number one, but you typically don't see venture investments going in that area. We continue to keep our eyes open on some of those things. I think one of the challenges of innovation in those sectors is that there's not many investments also because there's not many companies because it's a low awareness sector among entrepreneurs. And we've done a couple of investments related to HVAC technologies. We saw that it's a very specific market and uh, a lot of investors just have no idea what's going on. The players in this sector, either large energy companies or contractors, and bringing them the technology is not necessarily very easy. Absolutely. And, and I think one fundamental aspect is also how interdisciplinary the whole area of deep tech is. If I look at HVAC, things like Thermoelectrics or AI-based approach with quantum computing for materials discovery may not come to somebody's mind right away. But because we are looking at so many different verticals, we always try to connect the dots between you know different disciplines, different technologies that we see in one market to see whether it could make an impact on a completely different vertical. And uh, there is an aha moment that you get in, in some of those cases, and we try to leverage on that. Yeah, so actually along those lines, uh, Kenny, I'd like to ask you, what's the approach for KV to enter new deep tech sectors? Because a lot of VCs get very intimidated with sectors they're not familiar with. It's much easier to stay in well-known territory, but you guys are pretty adventurous. It's in part trying to identify where are the opportunities that can have a big impact on society and trying to identify also what technologies can have a real impact on, on adding efficiencies to that sector. We start from there. The bigger question is, we like to understand what is the biggest risk we need to retire and in what order, uh, in order to know that, yes, we are moving towards a successful outcome for the entrepreneur and us. And I think within the firm, having a sufficient amount of expertise, and then within our network, keeping up with people with that expertise becomes really important to help calibrate what risks have already been retired and what is with the next amount of time interval and the next pool of capital, what is the risk that we want to retire? And being very laser focused on that style of de-risking or risk retirement, I think is our approach uh, across all of those sectors. To give a couple of examples, so Rocket Labs is a company which launches rockets to launch CubeSats or small sats into space. It took four years before the company first test launch. But we were aligned with the founder on what risks need to be retired uh, along the time. So for the first year of Rocket Lab's life, they were basically retiring the engine risk, which we knew and they knew was the most important thing to understand and de-risk. Another one of our portfolio companies, a company called Voyage. It's a self-driving uh, taxi service in communities, uh, starting with retirement communities. The idea there is you start with a more constrained set of the problem. So instead of trying to solve autonomous driving for every kind of road or every kind of city in the world, they are starting with a constraint set. They're starting with uh, private communities where you can afford to set up extra sensors. You can set up LIDARs. The speeds are lower. The roads are wider. The weather usually in these retirement communities is better. And it allows for the technology to be tested with a real business model in the real world. You're not just running simulations, but it's a more constrained version of the problem. And so there are like different approaches we apply, but for every company that study is slightly different, there isn't one formula, but at the highest level, if I had to abstract, it would be identifying what is the biggest risk we need to retire and what's the fastest and the most cost-effective way 
to get past those risks is our playbook, really. One thing we noticed with many of the companies we work with is that even if you identify good like business and technical milestones, you still have some kind of funding risk. To take the example you gave about Rocket Lab and getting four years before the launch, like what makes you confident that the company will be able to finance itself through those different milestones? Essentially, you need to find other investors who think the same way you do. Yeah, I think it's a function of what the sector is. But broadly, uh, we prefer technology risks to market risks on any investment that we make. But if I go take a couple of sectors, for example, in medtech, it's about the fundamental science, right? So we look at what are the biggest technical risks that will cost us significantly more in the long run. We try to de-risk those first so that these are not expensive mistakes or we don't wait it out in terms of de-risking them. The other key one in, in medtech uh, particularly is uh, things like regulatory risk, right? So how do you mitigate that? Obviously, clinical trials may take some time for some of the companies and we invest early stage. So we look for results from pre-clinical trials or kind of expectation on what the performance would be if the company were to go through some of the clinical trials later. The other key aspect we look at from a you know, de-risking perspective is strong IP. What does the company have in terms of IP that's long-term sustainable? Do we have any blocking IP? Do we have the freedom to operate? De-risking those things uh, to be ahead of the market is very critical. We also don't invest in a lot of uh, subcomponent level companies. We look for kind of a minimum viable product system level that a customer can really test and provide early feedback on. So how early can we put a product that a customer can play around with, get early feedback so we can iterate very quickly and get a sense for who will pay and what is the willingness to pay? particularly in medtech. Is an insurance company going to cover it? Is consumer going to pay for it? Those things are very critical. So these are four or five things. If I just think of medtech, it may be completely different for a market like industrial technology. Some companies may be stuck with or are starting to work with slow-moving industries that may delay factories from driving robotics, automation, 3D printing, etc. In that case, de-risking the product market fit is very critical. Identifying the beachhead market and first application that will get you to revenues is extremely critical. So in those cases, we need to understand the customer pain point, the willingness to pay versus competition, and the product market fit are some of the first things we try to de-risk. So another reason I really wanted to have you on the podcast is because you're one of the few investors who actually invest at quite a large scale on deep tech. Many other investors do some investments but there's very few specialists and, and most of them don't do a lot of deals, uh, but you've done many deals. So I'm curious about what are the lessons you learned from successful and possibly also failed startups uh, through the deals you've done? That's an interesting question. I can take a stab at some. I recognize that I've been here only for six months. To me, having the right team is the single biggest factor, particularly for something like deep tech, because you're just dealing with so many verticals, even within a given industry. In a given company, I'm on the board of a healthcare company. You need expertise on optics, semiconductors, biological assays, AI and ML, all in one company. Uh, that's not the kind of expertise you need in a software company. So it's very different. And having a team that complements each other with best-in-class people, good culture is very critical if you want to de-risk on key elements across each of those verticals. We do something called option value investing in our fund. Uh, so we have a seed stage fund and also a main fund. So we do a lot of seed stage investments, anywhere from 250K, a million dollar, $2 million dollar. By the time these companies come for Series A, we have a much better view on what works, you know, what de-risking reminds, et cetera. 
So if you're able to deal with some of those key elements at the seed stage and it looks great, we invest heavily in the company. We take a much bigger stake in these companies because our internal view is you can only lose one X of your money, but the upside could be tremendous with the right companies. So we do take effort to double down on the winners, even at a series A or series B or later stages and try to leverage the information we have with a small check that we have written and see what decision we need to make at the later stage. The other key learning, certainly, whether it's in any of the deep tech, is the need for high-quality syndicate investors. Deep tech takes more time, more dollars than you can ever plan for. It's very important to have co-investors who have high conviction in the company and also good strategic partners who don't drag down the company in terms of collaboration or potential corporate venture investment. I think the biggest one to me is de-risking your most important question that has the highest uncertainty. That's the most important thing. There are important questions and there is another axis on uncertainty around those answers. You need to de-risk the most important questions with the highest uncertainty first so that it's not too late or too expensive by the time you come to those things. That could make a big difference between an early success and an expensive and slow failure. Can you, would you have anything to add on that aspect of the lessons learned from either successes or failed startups? One fundamental thing I'd say is Katie's culture obviously starts by Vinod at the helm of it, is that seeking that asymmetrical upside. So we would do investments if there's a 20% probability to become a 100x, we would do those investments all day. And yes, there's a high probability that they might not lead to anywhere, but the asymmetrical upside is the, the name of the game here. And that in combination with really focusing on the initial hires, like trying to bring the best in class people we have access to and surround the entrepreneur with patient investors or like-minded investors becomes key. There are definitely learnings we have from previous sectors or investments we have done, which continue to help us grow as we make investments. There, there were companies that we learned from our clean tech investments, which or there were learnings from there that helped us make better decisions when we were investing in Impossible Foods or some of our now clean tech or climate and sustainability in tech. So I think the, the openness to failing, but knowing exactly what we need to know at this stage and what risks we need to retire is our playbook, really. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've come across a number of, of investors who try a, some new sector they're not that familiar with and then things don't necessarily go very well and then they get very discouraged about the sector and their capacity to invest in it sometimes for a decade before they touch it again so your view on risk de-risking lessons learned is really interesting because it enables you to keep investing but knowing better and better what level of risk you're taking and building up on that knowledge so another question I have um, is uh, regarding your team, because the uh, KV team is quite large. There's investors who are called platform VCs and provide a lot of support and a lot of resources to startups. So if you can describe how, what kind of support the KV team is providing and like how many people are doing what in general terms, that'd be really interesting. So Raja, if you want to take a stab at that. So I think we have about a dozen people in the investment team and 12 people as operating partners as well. And in the investment team, we have strong expertise in, in many of the verticals uh, that we just talked about. The operating partners are a fantastic resource for all our portfolio companies. Kanu can correct me, but I think we have about 350, 400 companies in our portfolio overall over the past 15 plus years that we have been investing in. So these operating partners are a great resource for the key management. And these are people who have built scaled businesses and can quickly jump on a call with the CEOs 
on, on some of the key operational challenges that they face. We also have a strong talent uh, you know, recruiting team that we tap into to bring some really good names as hires for our portfolio companies. So I think it's a, overall, it's a well-balanced team in terms of both investment and operationally how we try to add value to the companies. That's really interesting. Like I saw that even on your website, in the resources you list, you have articles on recruiting, and you also mentioned something called the standard operating procedures to help startups. So can you elaborate on how you, you help founders in that way? To give you a specific example, we have Irene on our shop who used to run design at Google. And now for any of our portfolio companies who have a question or a problem they need to solve around the design or the user experience or the brand experience, she's an amazing resource. Similarly, we have people who can help mentor first-time founders. They have more of a CEO coaching role because that's what they have done in the past and, and taken companies themselves public and helped other CEOs or been really good uh, citizens of our founders community. And they, they can be a first call for any of these first-time founders on how to run like some logistical challenges or day-to-day operating challenges. I think our biggest single value add is on the recruiting side. We have four partners at the firm, operating partners, who help hire both on the technical side and also VP level and above uh, executive hires for our portfolio companies. And the one thing that impressed me most when I joined KV was the amount of time even the investment partners, including Beno, they spend in helping portfolio companies hire, both on assessing candidates and helping them close. And I think if I had to like highlight just one single way we absolutely help our portfolio companies is on the recruiting side. Like that by far is like our biggest value add. And then we do all the things which other VC firms, I think, also do in, in terms of like coach and, and legal and design and everything. But I think that the recruiting for us is probably key. And it's an inordinate amount of time I've seen on Vinod's calendar helping with hiring. That's so true. We know this calls himself a glorified recruiter because of the amount of time he spends in bringing top leadership to the companies we invest in. Would you say that this is the, the biggest challenge of, of most deep tech startups or are there other specific challenges that deep tech startups have that you've seen across the board? I think there are a few, like absolutely recruiting the team, recruiting and bringing the best in class people you have access to becomes one of the biggest challenges or the biggest first that the company should retire. I think the other aspects which deep tech startups have over any other startup in general is one, being very uh, clear on the order of risk you want to retire. So retiring the biggest risk upfront. And oftentimes it may not be the best outside looking signal. Like it may not be the revenue which you're retiring first and it may be harder to convince the next round of capital to come in. But because the opportunity cost for these founders is so high and oftentimes these companies take longer to get to a, a successful state, it's very important to not lose sight of what is the key risk you need to retire at this stage. Prioritizing that list becomes another challenge. And I think the third thing is just uh, surrounding yourself with patient capital. So just getting the right investors or the advisors around you who, like you, believe in the big outcome, the asymmetrical upside, and, and don't try to ask you for a quick exit or don't try to force you into that becomes very important. Specifically for deep tech startups, those are the things I'd say they have to handle most. And can you would you say that there's more of this patient capital these days in the deep tech ecosystem? We try to surround ourselves with other people who are like-minded and who similarly believe in the biggest goal. There's absolutely a, a, a brand that gets created. KV's past successes helps give us credibility for the next set of investments. And people do want to understand which companies have we invested in and what's our uh, investment thesis here. I think there's a lot of capital out there and you'll find all sorts of investors. But picking investors is, I think, name of the game here. 
What do you think would, aside from patient capital, help improve the deep tech ecosystem overall? I think there needs to be a better engagement between corporate VCs and financial VCs. Having been in the corporate VC world for 10 years, looking to build the bridge with the financial VC now on the other side, there's a lot of investors on the corporate side uh, looking at deep tech opportunities, but historically they've been very slow. That's a big issue. Uh, and people have tried to ask for a lot of strategic rights that makes it difficult for bringing the right uh, CVCs in. But that's changing a lot with some corporate VCs, Microsoft explicitly saying that they don't want to have strong strategic rights or rofer rights and all that stuff. So that's encouraging. So there needs to be more forum for these communities to come together. For example, there is a global corporate VC event that uh, happens in January every year. You almost find absolutely no financial VC there. So that bridge, I think, would be helpful. And I think what organizations like SOSV are doing is extremely valuable, whether these podcasts or the events, I've been to many of your events that you hold in terms of exposing those early stage deep tech companies that you have, showing what kind of financing happens across the world, what are some major trends across the world. It motivates a lot of people to spend more time in deep tech and see that there is an ecosystem of investors. So that kind of bringing together the community is extremely helpful. I think the third one I would say is there is value in removing a lot of inefficiencies in the system. I think, for example, the safe structure that has come up in the last few years has been very useful for a lot of startups in terms of raising money without having to negotiate a very detailed term sheet and all that stuff. Similarly, there are standardized approaches, and I've explored this with other larger institutions in the past, that helps on commercial contracts for startups with larger companies. So they don't waste significant time negotiating this. That would be helpful. And particularly for the U.S., I think more government funding on some of these deep technologies would be very helpful. The, the telecom, the semiconductor innovation, a lot of it came from the amount of money that DARPA invested, right? Similarly, the clean tech uh, success with uh, solar, Tesla has all been from what ARPA-E and a lot of uh, DOE government funding went into that area when everybody was thinking that 2008, 2009 will, will spell doom for clean tech and industries. So it's important for the U.S. government also to step up and start funding these deep tech startups in a significant way. Yeah, you're right. In the US, there's a large amount of funding available through SBIR grants, but many startups are not necessarily aware of them or don't know how to navigate them effectively. So uh, that's definitely a challenge there. What sectors are you the most interested in currently? I saw online the post around the climate technologies. I guess COVID might also have stirred up some interest in, in particular sectors. Could you give us a view of what are the most interesting ones for you at the moment? Sure, I can add a few. And biomanufacturing is an area that I'm very interested in. Uh, there is a whole set of verticals and companies in that sector. As you mentioned, clean tech is something I'm still passionate about. KV continues to look for good opportunities. There are at least 12 different areas we are actively looking at. And Kanu mentioned about automation with robotics. That's a huge trend that's happening right now when people are looking at social distancing and what can you do to continue the path of uh, robotics. A couple of other trends I'm focused on is uh, the whole concept of hyperlocal manufacturing, whether it is 3D printing or other approaches where uh, countries want to have their supply chain, the overall manufacturing locally and perhaps in multiple countries, but in a distributed fashion so that you are not significantly hurt when things go wrong in one particular country. Supply chain is another area I'm actively looking at, but those are you know, just a handful of areas that I'm, I'm spending time on. Maybe uh, on the topic of biomanufacturing, because uh, I think a lot of people have heard now uh, food in the lab, 
but uh, I guess it expands to many other applications, including industry. Could you give some examples of some applications of biomanufacturing you're interested in? Yeah, it's anywhere from the good old way of are there biofuels that people can look at, but we have done a lot of investments in those areas. We are looking at a lot of other verticals within that. For example, what kind of uh, medical devices can leverage what is happening in, in biomanufacturing? What kind of textile innovations are possible that leverage some of the natural materials that we are looking at for sustainability purposes? There are a whole bunch of verticals around carbon sequestration. How do you improve or increase the overall photosynthesis so that you can have more carbon sequestration at a much higher scale for, to address the climate crisis? And the whole concept of biocomputing is, is another vertical that we are looking at. So there are a lot of verticals. And the question is, which one do we prioritize and, and where do we see the next big inflection? And can you, would you have things to add maybe on the, the software hardware combination front on the robotics that you're looking at? Yes, absolutely. So some of the things I think Rajesh mentioned, so looking at autonomous systems and their impacts on logistics, on warehouse automation, supply chain as a whole. Then there is advances in AI, so speech recognition, natural language processing, all of the recent announcements around OpenAI's and some of our other AI-first companies. I also spend a lot of time on hardware acceleration for AI to just allow more advent of AI around us, both in terms of a faster processing and then also on the edge, being more uh, aware of the power constraint environments and still enabling edge computing. So those are some of the areas that I've been spending my time in. One of the companies I'd like to highlight started out of uh, University of Montreal. This is uh, a founder who works with uh, Joshua Benjir, who's one of the Turing Awards winner in AI. And there is so much advances happening in natural language processing and dialogue systems. And he's very passionate about education. So we invested, this company is called Corbett, and they are building an AI-based personalized tutor. And, and the idea is that with a personalized tutor, you don't run the risk of a high dropout rates from an online course because the engagement and the retention can be increased because of curriculum personalization of modality of which the students learn best in and just better framing what aspects in free-flowing text can you understand, like what aspects or what concepts do students already understand and where they need to learn more. So this is a combination of like identifying where we believe that technology has a big role to play and then also identifying a center of excellence and working with the right founder and the team in order to attack or address this challenge. How did you get in touch with that company? Because the timing sounds so perfect now with uh, COVID and the work from home or study at home situation. But it's often interesting to understand the origins of those initial contacts to understand how you work. So this one in particular was among the labs we try to keep up with. One of the areas we spend a lot of time is just keeping up with the latest in technology or just what's possible today and what's real and, and what's hype. This comes from us as investors and our network trying to figure out what is real and what can really be applied today towards an application. So this was a contact from the University of Montreal, uh, Mila. This is uh, their language learning institute. And I got introduced to this founder and, and was very excited about his passion for improving online education. Sounds like a perfect timing and perfect application. So maybe to conclude, the purpose of this podcast is also to help investors get more familiar with deep tech and the investment in deep tech uh, from uh, angels, VCs, CVCs that you mentioned, for instance, but also LPs who might be more in inclined to back deep tech funds. So what would you recommend for them to look into to raise their level of knowledge and confidence about deep tech? If it's specifically a recommendation for investors new to deep tech, I would say 
the whole deep tech ecosystem investment is a marathon and sometimes it's a relay race. So that's why you know, picking your co-investors syndicates wisely with a longer term horizon in mind is very important. Depending on your fund size, you may be able to go to only to certain stages. You may not be able to allocate more capital. And so bringing in some of those larger investors and more importantly, investors with conviction in the area that you're investing into well upfront would be extremely valuable so that your companies have a chance to be successful, to bring a strong syndicate of investors in the long run. The second one I would say is have conviction and ensure you'll have a staying power in a sector. Don't jump into a particular deep tech vertical just because it's hot today. Make sure it's reasonably aligned with your long-term mission, your LPs, interest areas, and the capital that you can allocate for that sector. Because this is not like an enterprise software or a social media startup where you can throw a little bit of money over a lot of companies. And given the bubble and the number of investors that you have around the table, you may be able to raise money towards an exit opportunity. So having that conviction in a particular sector, I would say, is very critical. The third thing I would highlight is you should recognize that hiring will be a critical part of your job, not just because we do it and we do spend a lot of time, but it's an important one. We should recognize that deep tech companies need a lot of expertise and just as startup founders may not have access to the talent across so many verticals that need to come together. And that's one of the biggest value add for VCs. And that's something you need to commit to in terms of time and your expertise and network as well. Uh, can you do you feel that to be a deep tech investor you need to have yourself uh, as a start deep tech expertise or is it something that can come along as you study different sectors i don't think you need to come in with an expertise already it it can help it can help you get started but i don't think that's a requirement or a prerequisite for somebody to become an investor in deep tech i think what's required is having a, a strong conviction in certain areas or at least being immersed in an area so i think it all begins with immersion in an area having your original thought on what should exist and then the patience on actually carrying those ideas out. Uh, and yeah, I, I strongly don't believe like you you absolutely need a PhD before you can invest in a certain area. It's, it's more about an, an immersion in that area and the want to learn more and be curious and, and just, just learn the most you can and then building conviction in that area. Absolutely agree with Kano. I think it's about making sure you have the right questions and bringing the right people around you to help answer those questions rather than having a domain expertise in, in all these verticals. So fully agree with Kanwal. That's very encouraging for the future of the deep tech sector. We covered a lot of topics, so I will just uh, close by uh, wishing that uh, through your investments, you keep solving many of those tremendous problems that humanity is facing every day. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for the great work you're doing. It's really good when people are shut down and at homes that you're trying to do a lot of connecting the dots between the investors, between the startups and, and keeping the ecosystem active. So really appreciate your work. Thank you, Ben, for having us, and we look forward to more co-investments with you. Subscribe now for future episodes, follow us on Twitter at Lab2Market and SOSV, or visit our other podcasts, Designing Science on Biology and China Startup Pulse on Asia Cross-Border Internet.